This episode is brought to you by the In Between Podcast, a podcast about marriage, parenting, faith, and everything in between. Join us as we give you the tools to learn how to build a strong, connected, and joy-filled marriage and family. For more information, go to inbetween.org. That's imbetween.org. This is Troy and Jill, and you are listening to Revive Thoughts. What divine surprise was this? That heaven should have preached peace to earth after that earth had proclaimed war against heaven. Every week we bring you a different voice from history in a sermon that they delivered. Today's sermon is titled Faith, and it was preached by Andrew Gray sometime in the mid-1650s. Joel, the first thing that stands out about Andrew Gray is that he lived a very short life. He was born probably in 1633-34. There's disputes because back when you're going that far back, it's never the records aren't always sure. as good. Uh, but based on when he entered school, it was in that era. And he died in 1656. So he would have been 22, 23 years old or so when he died. Uh, but despite such a short life, he made a really big impact. And his sermons that were copied down have been recognized as some of the great works of Puritanism. He, like Alexander McLaren and George Matheson, always knew he was going to be a minister. And so from a very young age, he was studying for this one purpose in his life. Looking at Gray's educational life growing up, it seems to be kind of everything mine wasn't. Like this character, he was a genius for all intents and purposes. He skipped through all of his class. He was, you know, the quote that you see when looking up his life, he's quoted as, quote, having learning and manners beyond his years. He graduated from college by the age of 20. Now, at the time, the church had a, had pretty strict rules on not allowing people to preach at the age of 20, but uh, they had a, an exception made in his case because he was considered very well-versed in, in the field for his age. Yeah, he, he did extremely well in school, and then he would go on to a church, and he quickly grew a crowd. People were really excited. The seats were full just to hear this young man preaching the gospel. Again, a man who was too young at the time to be considered, uh, to be allowed to be ordained. He did not seem like other young people. They said he felt wise beyond his years. He seemed just really knowledgeable. And it's important to note, it might not have always been this way. There is a story of him, maybe legend, maybe not, that suggests he kind of was a little bit different when he was very young. His parents believed he was the uh, a very playful kid, not really serious, always goofing around. Um, but at an age, and, and no one knows for sure, but probably somewhere between five and nine, he was traveling on a trip and he saw a beggar on the side of the road and this beggar just kind of caught his eye. Yeah, great. Watch this this beggar walk across the street and he he, re, he recalls this, you know, looking back at his life. He, he talks about this experience he had watching this beggar go and sit down on a rock on the side of the rode there and lift his arms and praise God in in a sincere prayer of faith. And he was so moved by it. He was so in awe that a person that had so little was so grateful to God. And it it seemed to have changed his life. There's definitely a changing moment there, a point in his life in which uh, he went off in a a different direction. It made made a deep impact in his life. His teachers, his parents said from that moment on, he just seemed like a more serious child. That's when his genius, his real skills started to come out. After two years of preaching and teaching to crowds, and there are stories of other preachers in town just being amazed at how his church filled up. But uh, after two years, he died of what was called, uh, quote, purple fever. 
And I looked it up and no one knows for sure what it is. There's a couple different things that purple fever might be. One of the most highly suggested things uh, for that time would have probably been scarlet fever. And you could see how it could be kind of called that. Uh, It's actually a little bit ironic, though, if this is the disease that killed him, there's a little bit of irony here because scarlet fever in that time would have been similar to chickenpox. It's kind of a disease that hit kids, it hit young people, but it wasn't really known for killing uh, adults. And so, and then not in a you know happy way. There's a little bit of an irony that this young preacher who kind of jumps into the scene at a young age makes this huge difference would then kind of die of a disease that really was known for only killing young people. And so it he's it, an interesting story. Part of the reason we know him today is that youthfulness and part of what ends his life may have been that youthfulness being weak to this specific disease. Yeah, there is a, a quote about him that uh, is from the 17. 17- Hundreds. There was an older man who was supposedly talking about Andrew Gray's sermons, and he's he's quoted as saying, Andrew Gray was proof that if God wanted to, out of the mouth of babes, they would preach the gospel and do it better than anyone else. In this sermon, he talks about what faith is and what holds people back um, from coming to faith. He lived a short life. In some ways, we usually value experience and wisdom. I mean, Revive Thoughts is kind of revolving around the idea that, you know, we need the history and wisdom of the past, right? But Andrew Gray is notable because, yeah, he was young, but he believed in God. He preached the gospel. He loved Jesus. He he believed that the word had power and that his sermons could transform lives, not because of anything he did, but because of God using them. And he really, in my mind, embodies the verse where Paul says, Timothy, don't let anyone hold you back because you were young. He was too young to preach, but nothing held him back. And even though he only had a couple of years to make those sermons, those sermons are still read today because they were done in the name of God and they were done with power and with skill. And so that is why I think the Sermon on Faith is something you got to listen to. John 3.23 This is his commandment, that you should believe on the name of his Son, Jesus Christ. This everlasting gospel is a most precious and excellent thing, not only because it contains the most absolute and sublime precepts and commands, in the exercise and obedience of which we not only attain to the highest place in holiness, but likewise because it contains the most rich and precious promises. This is clear in the grace of faith, For what purifies the heart and stamps it with the image of the invisible God more than this grace of faith? And what richer promises are given to any duty than to this duty of believing in everlasting life? So that if we have dwelt 40 days at the foot of Mount Sinai and have been under the strictest power of the law, we may yet come with boldness to Mount Zion and embrace Jesus Christ, who is the end of the law for righteousness to those who believe. Upon that mount, he stood holding out the scepter of peace, desiring us to embrace him and crying out that word in Isaiah 65, 1, behold me, behold me. Oh, may we not summon angels and these 24 elders about the throne to help us to wonder that ever such a command as this came forth, that we should believe in the name of the Son of God. 
after we had broken that first and primitive command that we should not eat of the forbidden tree, was this not indeed to make mercy rejoice against judgment? And oh, may we not wonder at this precious oath of the everlasting covenant, where he has sworn that he delights not in the death of sinners. What, suppose you, were poor Adam's thoughts, when at first the doctrine of free grace and of a crucified Christ Jesus as Savior was preached to him in paradise? What divine surprise was this, that heaven should have preached peace to earth after that earth had proclaimed war against heaven? Was not this a step of condescension? To behold an offended God preaching goodwill to a guilty sinner. What could self-destroying Adam think of these early and first discoveries of this everlasting covenant? Christ, as it were, in the morning of time, giving vent to that infinite love, which was resting in his bosom and precious heart before the foundation of the world was laid. We know not whether the infiniteness of his love, the eternity of his love, or the freedom of it makes up the greatest wonder. But surely these three joined together make up a matchless and everlasting wonder. Would any of you ask the question, what is Christ worth? We could give no answer so suitable as this. It is above all the numbers of all the angels in heaven and all the men on earth to calculate his worth. All men here must be put to a divine stupefaction. This was Job's divinity, Job 28:13. Man knows not the price of wisdom. And must not Jesus Christ, who is the precious object of faith and wisdom of the Father, be a superiment and excellent one, who has that name of King of kings and Lord of lords, not only graven on his vestiture, which pointed out the conspicuousness of his majesty, but even also upon his thigh, to point out that all his goings and his motions, he proves himself to be higher than the kings of earth. We confess it is not only hard, but simply impossible to commit an exaggeration in praising him, his worth being always so far above our expressions, and our expressions always so far beneath his worth. Exalt yourself, O Lord, above the heavens. But now to our purpose, being at this time to begin our discourse upon that radical and precious grace of faith. We intend to speak of it under this twofold notion and consideration. First, we will speak of it as justifying, or as it does lay hold upon the righteousness of a crucified Savior, making application of the precious promises in the covenant of free grace, which we call justifying faith. And in the second place, we will speak a little on faith as it does lay hold upon Christ's strength for advancing the work of mortification and does discover the personal excellencies of Jesus Christ by which we advance in the work of holiness and divine conformity with God, which we call sanctifying faith. However, it is not to be supposed that these are different habits of faith, but different acts flowing from the same saving habit laying hold and exercising themselves upon Christ in different respects and for different ends. Now, to speak upon the first, we have made choice of these words. The Apostle John, in the former verse, has been pointing out the precious advantages of the grace of obedience and of keeping his commands, that such a one has, as it were, an arbitrary power over God. The Apostle John in the former verse, has been pointing out the precious advantages of the grace of obedience and of keeping his commands. 
that such a one has, as it were, an arbitrary power with God and does receive many precious returns of prayer. As likewise, that one who is exercised in the grace of repentance is God's delight, which is included in this, that he does these things that are well-pleasing in his sight. And now in these words he does, as it were, answer an objection that might be proposed about the impossibility of attaining these precious advantages, seeing his commands were so large and that could hardly be remembered. This he does sweetly answer by the setting down in this one verse a short summary or brevary, both law and gospel, that we should love one another, which is the whole of the law, and we should believe on the name of his son, which is the compend of the gospel, and by this he shows the Christian that there are not many things required of him for attaining these excellent advantages. But if he exercise himself in the obedience of these two comprehensive commandments, he will find favor both with God and man. There is also this, the absolute necessity of this grace coming forth here in this world. In this word, his commandment, as it would have said by proposing of this command, I do set life and death before you, and that we would not conceive that it is an arbitrary and indifferent thing for you to believe or not. But be persuaded of this, that as an infinite advantage may constrain you to the obedience of it, so absolute necessity must persuade you to act that it is your everlasting concern. And lastly, you have the precious object upon which faith does exercise itself and that is upon the name of the Son of God. And, no doubt, faith is that excellent grace which does elevate the soul unto a sweet and inseparable union with Christ. And it is that golden and precious knot that does eternally knit the hearts of these precious friends together. Faith is that grace that draws the first glimpses of Christ's precious image on our hearts, and by love does accomplish and purify them. Now, faith takes hold not only on the faithfulness of God, that he is a God of truth, and that in him there is no lie, but likewise it takes hold on the omnipotence of God, that he is one to whom nothing is too hard, and on the infinite mercy and love of God, that he is one who does delight to magnify this attribute above all his works. And these are the three great pillars of justifying faith. From the first... It answers all these objections of sense, which do ordinarily cry forth, does his promise fail forever? And that, with this one word, if he has once purposed it, he will also do it. And if he has once spoken it, he will also make it come to pass. From the second, it answers all these objections that may arise from carnal reason and probability, which tends to the weakening of his confidence. And these do oftentimes cry out, how can these things be? But faith, laying hold upon the omnipotence of God, it staggers not at the promise, but is strong in the faith, giving glory to God. And it is this, this noble and divine exercise of this heroic grace of faith that these objections of reason and probability, which, which it cannot answer, it will lay them aside and yet close with the promise, which was the practice of believing Abraham who considered not his own body being weak, nor the barrenness of Sarah's womb. As likewise, it was the commendable practice of that woman, Matthew 15, who not being able to answer the second trial of her faith from reason, yet notwithstanding, 
Faith made her cry out, Have mercy upon me, O son of David. And from the last, a Christian does answer all the arguments of misbelief, which do arise from the conviction of our unworthiness and sinfulness, which makes us oftentimes embrace that divinity of Peter's. Luke 5, 8, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man. But faith, taking hold on the infinite mercy and love of Christ, it answers all with this. He walks not with us according to that rule of merit, but according to that precious and golden rule of love and boundless compassion. First, the gospel has laid no obstruction in our way of closeness with Christ and partaking of the effects of the gospel, but on the contrary, shows that the great impediment is our lack of desire, which we lay in our own way, as is clear from Revelation 22:17, where the gates of the gospel are cast open and whosoever will are commanded to enter in. He invited these that through the spirit of discouragement and misbelief have the greatest reluctance to come and may know that cardinal and soul-refreshing promise John 6:37, stop the mouth of misbelief so that it should have nothing to say. He that comes to me I will in no way cast out. You may reduce your misbelief, rather, to the sinfulness of your will than to the sinfulness of your walk. And if once you could come the length of willingness to embrace Jesus Christ, all other objection and knots should be sweetly lost and dissolved. Secondly, consider that, that though we should pray on half of our time and weep the other half, yet if we want this noble grace of faith, the wrath of God will abide in us. What, what are all these works of these hypocrites and these acts of law sanctification but a plunging of ourselves in the ditch until our own clothes abhor us? Therefore, it is that after the prophet Zachary has made mention in the 12th chapter of his prophecy of making bitter lamentation for whom we have pierced as for an only son, yet in the beginning of the 13th chapter, he makes mention of a fountain opened to the house of David for sin and for uncleanness, which may intimate to us that although we have washed ourselves with our own tears, yet there is use of the blood of Christ and that we must be washed in that fountain, even from our own righteousness, which are but filthy rags. Thirdly, consider that great and monstrous sinfulness that is in this sin of unbelief. We will strain a goat, but many will easily swallow down this camel. We will tithe mint and fast twice in a week, but neglect faith and love and judgment, which are the weightier things of the law. And indeed, there are these things which speak out the sinfulness of unbelief. One, that when the Holy Ghost is sent to convince the world of sin, John 16, 9, he pitched upon this sin as though there were no other sins of which the world had need to be convinced. He will convince the world of sin because they believe not on the Son of God. And, no doubt, there is more sinfulness in that sin than in many breaches of the moral law, it being a sin against matchless love and against that which is the remedy of all sin. Two, that it is called by way of amnesty, disobedience, as is clear from Hebrews 4.11. Lest any of you fall after the same example of unbelief, or as the word may be rendered, lest any of you fall after that example of disobedience. Three, that among all these that will be eternally excommunicated from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of the power, these 
that are guilty of this sin of unbelief, they are put in the first place, Revelation 21.8. And four, that unbelief does contradict and deny the precious and cardinal attribute of God. Does not unbelief contradict his faithfulness and make him a liar? And so, to enforce this precious command of faith, consider that it is his command which speaks forth this, that we must not take an indulgence or dispensation to ourselves to believe or not to believe at our pleasure. And it is not a strange thing that Christians are less convinced of the breaches of the commands of faith than of other commands. They think misbelief to be but a little sin, and it proceeds either from the conviction of other sins, as the neglect of prayer or the sin of swearing or committing adultery do arise from a natural conscience, or it proceeds from this, that unbelief does ordinary pass veil under the visard of some refined virtue as humility and tenderness, though it may be said that it is pride and ignorance clothed with the garment of humility. And no doubt, Christ does account it obedience to this commandment of faith, the greatest act of humility, as is clear from Romans 10.3, where it is called submission. They submitted not to the righteousness of God, or else it proceeded from this, that we convinced that the commandment of faith is not as large as other commands, and so does not bind us to the obedience of it. But know this, that it will be the condemnation of the world that they have not believed in the name of the Son of God. It is Satan's great design and cardinal project to keep us back from obedience to the commandment of faith, and that we should not listen to the precious promises of his everlasting gospel, but should reject the counsel of God against ourselves and refuse his precious and divine call. The second previous consideration that we would give will be to show you what are the causes that there is so much disputing of our interest. The second previous consideration that we would give will be to show you what are the causes that there is so much disputing of our interest and so little believing, that we are unstable as water, marring our own excellency, spending so much of our time in walking under a cloud, and are so seldom admitted to read our names in these precious and eternal records of heaven. There is also a bad influence upon our disputing and misbelieving from a guilty conscience and the entertainment of some predominant lust, which oftentimes occasioned our walking in darkness and having no light. This is learnt from 1 Timothy 1.19, where that precious jewel of faith can be holden in no other place but in a pure conscience. That is, that royal palace wherein it must dwell. And no doubt, if once we make shipwreck of a good conscience, we will err concerning our faith. An idol in the heart, when it is entertained, does exceedingly destroy the vigorous exercise of these graces, which are evidence of our faith. Therefore, when we find love not in its high and eminent place, we hardly make any clear concluding demonstration of our faith. As likewise, a heart idol, when it is entertained, makes use to lose much of our high esteem and reputation of Jesus Christ, which does exceedingly interrupt the sweet and precious acting of faith. For it is certain that if once the immortal soul is united to Jesus Christ by the bond of love and respect, then our faith will increase with the increase of God. Our entertainment of a heart idol is ordinarily punished with the want of the sensible closeness of his peace and our interest in him, so that sometimes 
his own, are constrained to cry out, God has departed from me, and he does not answer me, neither by dreams nor visions. There is also that which has influence on our faith, which is building our faith more on sense than upon Christ or his word. And therefore, it is that faith is so unconstant and changeable as the moon. We never know what such a thing means, to hope against hope and to be strong in faith, giving glory to God. And we would only say to you that erect your confidence upon so sandy a foundation that when the storm and wind of temptation blow, that house will fall to the ground. As likewise, the building of your faith upon sense does abate much of your joy and much of your precious esteem of Jesus Christ, it being faith exercising itself upon an invisible object that makes Christians to rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. 1 Peter 1.8. And there is this last thing that has influence upon our faith, our own slothfulness in the exercise of our spiritual duties by which faith should be strengthened. Faith is a tender grace and a plant that must not be ignored, but nourished through the sap of other precious graces. But we grow remiss in our spiritual duties and do not turn ourselves to the bed of security as the door upon the hinges. And does not our own drowsiness clothe us with rags and make us fall into a deep sleep? While we were diligent, O souls, should be made fat and rich? Yes, slothfulness does not only impede assurance in this, that it hindered the divine communication of his love and respect by which assurance may be kept in life. And withal, it lets loose the chain by which our corruptions are tied and makes them to lift up their head by which our assurance is much darkened and impaired. And our hope is much converted into diffidence and despair. And we would only say this, it is the diligent Christian that is the believing Christian, and it is the believing Christian that is the diligent Christian. There being such a sweet reciprocation between these two precious graces that they die and live together. Now, thirdly, we shut up our discourse with this in pointing out a little what are those things that do obstruct Christians' closeness with Christ and believing in his precious name. First, we conceive that this woeful evil does spring and arise from that fundamental ignorance of this truth, that there is a God, as is clear from Hebrews 11.6, where that is required as a qualification that we should believe that God is. And assuredly, will once this precious truth be imprinted upon our souls as with a pen of iron and the point of a diamond, or we will look upon the gospel as a, as a utopian fantasy and not a deluding notion. And truly it is the fault in many that they begin to dispute their being in Christ before they know there is a Christ, and to dispute their interest in him before they believe in his being. Second, our coming to Christ is obstructed from the want of the real and spiritual convictions of our desperate and lost estate without Jesus Christ, and that our unspeakable misery is the want of him, which is clear from Jeremiah 2.31. We are Lord's. We will come no more to you. And it is evident from Revelation 3, 16, 18, that such a delusion as this does overtake many, that they can reign as kings without Jesus Christ. 
and that they can build their happiness and establish their eternal felicity upon another foundation. But oh, that we could at once beat this to believe what we are without Christ and instead to believe that we will be in enjoyment of him with the one eye to descend and look upon these deep wells that the mystery of iniquity has imprinted upon your immortal souls and to reflect upon the wages of sin, which is death, and to be constrained to cry out, woe is me, for I am undone. And with the other eye to ascend and to look to that help that is laid upon that one that is mighty and to make use of the righteousness of a crucified saviour that so what we lack in ourselves, we may get it abundantly made up in him. Third, there is this likewise that obstructs our closeness with Christ, our too much addictedness to the pleasures and carnal delights of a passing world, which is clear from Luke 14, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, Matthew 22, 5, 6, where where these that were invited to come to the feast of this gospel, they do make their apology, and with one voice do refuse it, some pretending an impossibility to come, and some pretending an unavoidable inconvenience in coming. And oh, what a ridiculous thing is that poor compliment that these deluded sinners use to Christ. I, I pray you have us excused. And is it not the excuse of the world and the plea they make use of? Fourth, there is this lastly, which does obstruct one's coming to Christ. Their willingness to be denied to their own righteousness, which is clear from Romans 10.23. And we conceive if once these two were believed, the infinite excellencies of his person on whom we are to believe, and the infinite loss that these do sustain, who will be eternally rejected to him, we might be persuaded to entertain a divine abstractedness and holy retirement from all these things that are here below and to pitch our desires alone upon him who is the everlasting wonder of angels and the glory of the higher house. Oh, did we once suppose the unspeakable happiness of these whose faith is now advanced to everlasting felicity and fruition and has entered into that eternal possession of the promises. Might we not be constrained to cry out, it is good for us once to be there. Christ wept us in the law, but we do not lament. And he pled to us in the gospel, but we do not dance. He is willing to draw us with the cords of men and with the bonds of love. And yet we will not have him reign over us, May not angels laugh at our folly that we should so undervalue this prince of love and should condemn him who is in so high esteem and reverence in these two great assemblies that are above, of angels and of the spirits of just men made perfect. Christ has now given us the first and second summons. The day is approaching when the sad and woeful summons shall be sent against us into these everlasting flames out of which there is no redemption, and this will be the capstone of our misery, that we had once in life an offer, but did refuse it. And though there were four gates standing open toward the north, by which we might have entered into that everlasting rest, yet we chose rather to walk in the paths that lead down to death and to take hold of the chambers of hell. 
I've been uh, reading a lot of James lately in in my personal time, and James, you know, one of the themes that James talks about a lot is how your faith will be evident in in your life. The stronger your faith is, the more it'll it'll show in in how you conduct your life and how you interact. And uh, you know, listening to Andrew Gray talk about people's selfish motivations holding them back from belief. I think uh, it's interesting to you know kind of think about the flip side is that as well is the stronger your faith is the easier it is to to glorify God, to represent God, to conduct ourselves as as believers and followers of Christ. And I think the Spirit does give us power to do that. Uh, and I think you know you, you can you can kind of trace all, everything back to a lack of faith. When I think about my struggles in my personal life and the way that I conduct myself and the way that I represent Christ, every aspect of a believer you can you can kind of root back to how how strong is your faith? Do you really believe what you see here in the scriptures? And if you do. It should make a difference. He says one of the things that is keeping you from feeling the fullness of your faith or your faith really coming to life is, in his words, the slothfulness and the exercise of our spiritual duties. But what he's saying, the laziness of sticking to the spiritual disciplines. He compares faith to like a young plant and says it has to be watered and tended to and loved. And like a plant, it will grow and eventually it'll grow strong. It'll be something good. But if you don't water the plant, if it doesn't see sunshine, it's not cared for by the farmer, you will never reap the harvest. In the same way, in our spiritual disciplines, if you aren't reading the Word of God, if you aren't praying, if you aren't growing, if you aren't reading books, if you're not sharing your faith, if you're not serving, how can you expect to feel the fullness of your faith? How can you expect to have that close communion with God and see His power in your life transforming you from a sinner into something better? If you have not spent any time doing the things that your faith commands, and I think that too often we preach this idea of get saved and everything will be good from there. And it's like, no, there's a whole process after getting saved that follows getting saved. There's these disciplines and it's not a legalistic thing, but you know, if you buy a car and you choose never to take it out of the driveway, what was the point? If you have a faith, but you never put any of the disciplines into practice, the faith will never be what it could have been. And you're the one who misses out on it the most. Thank you for listening to Revive Thoughts. Today's episode was narrated by Will Smith. Please visit our website at revivethoughts.com. There you can find the transcript for this episode and all of our episodes. And while you are at revivethoughts.com, maybe check us out on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter where you will find us. We put out content throughout the week that we think is great for sharing, but also great community questions, answers, things happen on our social medias and we're quite excited about them. Also, if you ever need to contact us, you want to be a speaker, you just have a message that you'd like to send Joel or myself, you can feel free to message us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, or hit us up at revivethoughts at gmail.com. Also, if you could share the episode with others, tell them to a friend personally, or just share it out there and let your friends know about it. It goes a long way. If you like the show, consider throwing us a dollar or two on Patreon. Uh, We do have a Patreon. If you click on the Become a Patron button there is also an option to give a custom one-time amount yeah i mean what we do takes a lot of work and it is not free to run there are a lot of uh, bandwidth fees and and services that we pay for uh if you like the show consider uh wanting to chip in to, to help fund this show's operation this is troy and joel and this is revive thoughts 
This episode is brought to you by the In Between Podcast, a podcast about marriage, parenting, faith, and everything in between. On the In Between Podcast, you will hear how to raise children that change the world, ideas to keep the romance alive with your spouse, how to not hate your in-laws, ways to save money for your next vacation, and how to use the Enneagram in your relationships. Join us, Daniel and Christina M. as we give you the tools to learn how to build a strong, connected, and joy-filled marriage and family. For more information, go to imbetween.org. That's imbetween.org.